Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, A55 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, My guest today is a person who's recovering from addiction and has been sober for 19 years. Um, I'd like to welcome Stuart to the show. Hi, Stuart. Hey, Bill. Stuart, usually we we start talking, uh, talking about growing up and the things that influences growing up and how you sort of uh, first experienced addiction and how that affected your your early life. So what was your early family life like? Bill, it's a really, really interesting, great question. And uh, it's such an addict to say that it's an interesting question when I'm going to talk about myself. But uh, I grew up in a really dysfunctional family. I mean, I don't want to set a record for it, but these days, my parents would go to jail for the way they raised me. But back then, it was kind of accepted. My mother just doesn't cope well with life and marries violent alcoholics. And uh, my original father left when I was two. And back then, he was able to say that my mother committed infidelity, and that was the grounds for divorce. He was able to then pay her $30 a week for child maintenance for my brother and I. And that was just what the court said was the standard fee. And even back then, that wasn't a lot of money. And my mum worked full time and she has never been good with money. And we were poor. We were the poor people. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that uh, it's a little bit emotional, but at school there would be excursions and I couldn't go on them because we couldn't afford them. And there wasn't the social structure back then to help kids like me. But more, more, more honestly, we didn't talk about it. I said I couldn't go for some other reason. And uh, yeah. so I always knew that my life was different to everybody else's because I was the only kid that didn't go on excursions. That was pretty horrible and because they were always talked about the next day and I always felt that uh, I'd missed out on something amazing. But sadly, I had to pretend that I didn't care. And that, that's, a, that's a ripple through my life that when something horrible happens to me, I've got to pretend I don't care. Very unhealthy. Yeah. So can I ask you about your your friendships at school? It was very difficult. When I was up to about grade one or grade two, I had a nice circle of friends and we uh, potted around together. And one girl, I remember, I don't remember, she reminded me that um, I kissed this girl in grade two because she was leaving the school. And uh, many years later, she went on to name her son, her first son, Stuart, after me. <laughs> And I'll never forget that when she told me, wow, that's uh, I made a big impression on you. And uh, as a gay man, it's kind of funny that there's a young man named after me um, out there. But unfortunately, because of the disruption at home, I didn't have many friends at school. I found it very difficult to uh, maintain relationships with people because it was based on fear. I, was, I lived on fear. And I learned from a very age about being dishonest, financially dishonest, because um, I would steal. So I never felt good enough, and I was dishonest. So it was a challenge to have relationships. So in my primary school days, and I moved school a few times, and it was very difficult. It was very difficult. It wasn't until I was in high school that I found some people that were like me, as in mad as and crazy parents, and we got along really well. And one of them is still my friends today, um, or two of them actually are my friends today, and it's really nice. And we were poor and we had that in common. And my God, you can have fun without money. 
we used to have so much fun. I can't tell you, Bill. It's um, <laughs> I have a son now who wants $230 runners. And um, I'm like, really? Because you know what? I reckon we can get them at Kmart for 20 bucks. But uh, it's not the world he lives in. So, yeah, no, I had some good friends and we would have fun. And we did things like walk to the city from Glen Waverley. Yeah. It was just fun. Yeah, we would uh, ride on public transport and not pay our fares. <laughs> and sometimes I've always had a pet and I had a dog and we would pretend my dog was my seeing eye dog and then I was blind when the chicken inspector came towards us. <laughs> and he just humoured us, I swear, he did several times. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but we had no money. Like, we genuinely had nothing. There was a time when we were so poor that um, my brother and I had wheat dicks for breakfast and my mum had peaches from the peach tree out the front. And that went on for about a week because there was just no food. And my mum didn't want us to realise. Um, but we did. Because you do. Kids are a lot more aware than people give them credit for. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's the uh, that's the thing. That when you grow up, you realise <laughs> kids kids knew an awful lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sense it. You know, I, I believe we're very intuitive beings and we may not say it or hear it, but we can feel it. I had one father that was a violent alcoholic and we could hear him come through the front gate and everybody started panicking. Yeah. You know, it's just, and he wasn't always violent uh, and he wasn't always drunk. But we knew when he was, just by the way, up in the game. It's a bit of a roller coaster, but I have some fantastic memories of being really poor and still having a lot of fun, like a lot of fun. And then strangely, my mother came into money, a little bit of money, and she bought me a horse. It was just the happiest time of my life to have that horse. And um, yeah, but there was financial unmanageability around that because my mother brought me a horse, but she couldn't have pay the adjustment. Yeah. So I had to sneak into the horse paddock and the owner of the horse paddock was so kind to me, so kind. John Lyons, such a nice man. He's passed away now. But, yeah, he, he let me live there, let my horse live there rent-free because he realised what the situation was. But that brought a lot of fear and it took away some of the pleasure, Bill, of having a horse. And while I was at the horse paddock, oh, once again, I knew everybody was paying their adjustment and everybody had certain stuff. Oh, God, it was fun. I love it. I still love it. I have a horse now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. So you mentioned that your fathers were violent alcoholics. So did you have any exposure to drugs and alcohol when you were young? Like a lot. The next-door neighbour was a heroin addict. I used to babysit for a husband and wife who um, were both alcoholics and in a physically abusive relationship. And... Uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. It was it was like really bad. Like it's it's once again it's criminal, absolutely criminal. But uh, I was allowed to watch that and experience that. Yeah, they would come home drunk and bash each other up, and I would pretend to be asleep on the couch. And I was getting like four dollars a night for babysitting, and I wanted that four dollars. Like really wanted that four dollars. It's uh, um, but yeah, I was surrounded by alcohol and drugs, Bill, and all sorts of drugs. You know, people talk about. Uh, yeah, there's heroin, there's cocaine, there was, well, it wasn't ecstasy back then, a lot of marijuana, um, speed. Yeah, no, it, it was everywhere and you could smell it. And that's what I always say to people, you don't realise, but you can smell it, you know. Yeah. People think they're straight, then they can get away with it, but you smell it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> I always think it's funny. They're trying so hard to look normal and be contained. It's like, you can smell it, you know. It's, uh, anyway. Yeah. Almost everybody knows an alcoholic, but they don't know who it is. A hundred percent. hundred percent. It's uh, I would say more than one, Bill. I really would. Yeah. I'd say more than one. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. We'll get to it later, but there's high-functioning alcoholics, which I was, and you know, people had no idea. No. It's a, it's a, it's a bizarre world. And, and then it gets normalised, Bill. That's a, it's a huge word when you say it's something normalised because something incredibly dysfunctional like the next door neighbour using heroin, but it was normalised. Yeah. But somebody else in the street did it. And it wasn't like, well, let's call the police. It was like, oh, yeah, that can happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. So when did you start using drugs and alcohol? I started drinking with one of my girlfriends from school, vodka. We used to have vodka shotties. And 
I say this to my kids today. Are you drinking for effect or because you like the taste? And they say, oh, we like the taste, and they're drinking vodka. And I think, well, that's just bullshit because no one likes the taste yeah. of vodka. It's, uh, <laughs> and we used to have vodka shotties, and we would challenge each other, have one, have one, have one, have one, and we'd be sitting down to trees getting drunk, so drunk. Yeah, that particular girlfriend had been kicked out of home at 16 for being annoying to her mother, and she was annoying to her mother. But, yeah, so 16, 17, but I wasn't alcoholic then. I was um, just drinking a lot because I didn't drink every day. And every time I drank, I didn't drink to uh, blackout or unmanageability. Okay. And the marijuana kicked in when I was about 18. I found marijuana at 18 and just fell in love with it. Oh, my God. And that's the sad part about marijuana is for people like me, it's just when you're smoking that joint, it's amazing. But the paranoia and the insecurity that comes later, Bill, oh, my God, it's just horrible. And the only solution to the paranoia and insecurity is to have another joint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that was every day for 20 years. That was pretty bad. That was, like, really bad. But, uh, I do wonder if there's long-term damage there, um, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yes, only time will tell, it won't. Yes. So how did this drug use affect your life, you know, work, school, interactions? The drug use, as I said, made me paranoid and insecure and hypersensitive. And paranoia, um, for people who maybe have heard that word and haven't experienced it, is when I am so self-centred that everybody is thinking about me and everybody is talking about me. And when you look at me, you don't like me. You know, that's the paranoia for me. It's just exhausting. And it just goes on and on in my head and I can't stop it. Absolutely can't stop it. I can be having a conversation with someone and I'll start thinking they don't like me and it just goes off. And it's just horrible and it's exhausting. And I just can't wait to get away from them and go and have a joint to stop thinking like that. Yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible. Mm. So given that you were reasonably poor, very. <laughs> how did you afford drugs and alcohol? Oh, that's a great question, Bill. So I got into prostitution and bank robbing when I was 18. And um, that's what happened, Bill. That's <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe I said both. Uh, yeah, but that's what I did. And for those people in recovery out there who will understand this, I have made my amends. I have healed the past, and that's why I can talk about it now. You know, I have cleared, we talk about it in the program, that I've cleared away the wreckage of my past. And it took many, many years to come to terms with all that, Bill. But, um, yeah. yeah, I'm incredibly dishonest when I'm not in program. Mm. You know, I, I can, I'm a great thief, a really, really good thief. Yeah, um, I'm very lucky that I never went to jail. And I was a shopping prostitute, by the way. I used to give credit. You know, I had such low self-esteem, I would give credit. <laughs> so bad, so bad. It's, um, yeah, and I also, I think that was on and off for quite a while, but uh, I also um, worked very hard, Bill, very hard. I was a workaholic, absolutely workaholic. And uh, from the age of... 18, 19, I started running other people's businesses, delicatessens, as in the food, and uh, was reasonably good at it. Yeah, reasonably good at it. I uh, got promoted a lot to work for some major chains, and they paid me a lot of money. Uh, but unfortunately, I spent all that money. I can't tell you how much money I have earned in my life, Bill. Like, I started smoking dope at about seven, uh, drinking at about 16, 17, and smoking dope at about 18 doing a lot harder drugs about 19, 20. And I stopped when I was 37. And I've never worked out how much money I spent on all that stuff, but it's a lot. Yeah. Like, well, I just, I, I can't even fathom it. I really can't. Yeah, 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 just a lot. But, yeah, I worked very hard. And um, I went on and set up my own company, and that was quite successful And until GST came in, and that ruined me because, well, you didn't have to pay it, did you? Like, <laughs> As a business, surely not everybody has to pay their GST. And uh, yeah, I got in trouble with the tax office. Big, big trouble. Um, 
Right. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. Uh, our first song is by Les Thomas. It's one of his new releases. It's called The Circus Has Moved On. Enjoy. dust has settled and the crowds have disappeared when victory is snatched away the moment we all fear when the tents have all been rolled up and the wagons have been packed Feel within my senses This won't be our final lap I have grown accustomed To the famines and the feast Rode in trucks with strangers And wandered with the beast I have learned to juggle Just to dodge the throwing Seen the cards all play out in the fortune teller's life. Oh, the scaffold crumbled and everything went wrong. You and I are still here when the circus has moved on. I saw out. Raiding down the street Met a lion tamer His head hung in defeat I watched the tightrope walkers As they tiptoed here and there The clowns were telling dirty jokes Pretending not to care Spotlight yearns to flicker there Upon your hydropeas Eyes all filled with wonder See you riding on the breeze Know you took your chances And we can't win them all I am here to weave a net and catch you if you fall. Though the scaffold crumbled and everything went wrong, you and I are still here when the circus has moved. I am still here when the circus has moved on. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story, a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. 
Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8:30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Stuart and we're talking about his recovery. And Stuart's been in, as he mentioned, drugs and alcohol. But there's a few other things there too, which we'll get to soon. So, um, Stuart, do you want to talk a bit more about how your life progressed? You, you said you had, before the break, you had, you had a successful company, but you had problems with um, GST and the tax office. So um, I guess that highlights some of the issues that face a, an addict and somebody who's compulsive, that when you brush up against regulation, it, it often grates a bit. So where was your life going at this point? Um, thank you, Bill. Um, where was my life going? It's like, I'm not sure I ever was great at a life plan. In fact, I know I wasn't. If I was, I would be um, sitting in a zoo at the moment that I own because that's my goal one day to have a zoo. But at 21, my life goal was to have a zoo. Um, and how I was going to get that was to make a lot of money. So I proceeded to make a lot of money. But unfortunately, I would spend all that money. And we talk about the uh, money doesn't stick to my hands. Money comes in and money goes out. And I don't see it. I can start the day back then with $300 in my wallet. And at the end of the day, there's nothing in my wallet. And I'm really not sure where it all went, Bill. And that's it's fast. I mean, I can still do it today, to be fair. But I'm better at it, much better at it. And I try and write down my spending every day, uh, what I spend money on. But when I'm 21, 22, I'm traveling the world, going to zoos, having a ball, running out of money desperately quickly when I find a little party house in uh, like Chicago and uh, partying with some wild women who uh, drive ambulances and we drive in the streets off our trees, just having so much fun, half in blackout and half awake. And then the next day I've got no money and I'm hungry and I don't know what to do. And actually I do know what to do. And I go to the supermarket and I start filling up my trolley. And in America, there's food everywhere to eat in a supermarket, pre-made sandwiches, drinks, and you just pop them into your trolley. And as I'm going around, I'm picking up these foods and I'm eating them as I go around the trolley. And when I've had my fill, I park the trolley somewhere and just walk out of the shop. And uh, that's my lunch and my breakfast, and I'm doing that twice a day. I've got the sort of the gumption to get away with it until one day. Well, no, I still got away. But one day as I'm doing it and I notice some security guards, so I'm hyper paranoid from all the marijuana. Um, and I notice the security guards watching me and they're standing by the door. And I thought, you guys are there for me. Like, I'm done. I'm a tourist and I'm on a visa and I've got no money and you're just going to throw me out of the country. But I parked the trolley and I walked right past them with all the gumption an addict can get. And they didn't stop me. I was so lucky, Bill. I was so lucky. But it was that paranoia about, oh, I think they're there for me. But they weren't it's, uh, at all. And because I had no money, I used to uh, prostitute myself for accommodation. But I was having fun. Like, it, uh, no one feels sorry for me because I was having a lot of fun then. I, I was like, really, yeah, having a ball. Met some amazing people. But none of that is manageable. None of that is healthy. Like, I am not in control of that. I am being blown around by the wind. So that's for most of my 20s. I'm traveling the world looking at zoos, working really hard in Melbourne. Then I met the guy, a lovely guy. He was very normal and very sane. And um, I calmed down for a while, and uh, he helped me set up a business. And I started manufacturing lighting 
in Australia. For a few years, we were pumping out lights, and then I started manufacturing furniture in India. Yeah, it was all going really well, but my alcohol addiction was really starting to kick in. So I would drink at the pub up the road, just around the corner, and I would take $20 from the safe, and I'm going to go to the pub, and I'm only going to spend $20, Bill, because I'm not stupid. No, I can control myself and just spend 20 bucks. I go to the pub, run out of 20 bucks, I go back to the shop. I've got to open the door, turn off the alarm, find the safe, open the safe, take another 20 bucks out, close the safe, turn the alarm back on, lock the front door, and go back to the pub and spend 20 bucks. I could do that six times in a night because I'm so insane thinking I'm only going to need 20 bucks. And it was so much work. And in the end, I nearly set fire to the shop because I lit a candle and forgot that I lit the candle. And yeah, it was just stupid. So yeah, money wasn't good. Alcohol was bad. My relationship ended, which was really sad. He was a lovely guy, but he just wouldn't drink enough for me. Like, I just wanted to drink and uh, he didn't like drinking. So we broke up and I was free to do whatever I wanted. And I had this business that was doing very well, but he was like my rock. He kept me stable. We talk about in 12 Step that we take prisoners, and he was like my prisoner. And when I broke up from him, I had no rock, and I just went wild, like absolutely out there, Bill. Like, yeah, I um, manufacturing lighting. I had a very famous person in Australia come up to me who had a chain of retail outlets and talk to me about me designing some lighting for their shop. And I said to them, do you want to come out the back and have a joint? You know, it was so bad. And I still see her on television occasionally. It's like, oh, my God. Um, yeah. She was so polite. She goes, no, thank you. I'll go now. <laughs> so bad, Bill. So bad. But I just normalized it, the marijuana. I normalized it. I just, um, yeah. It all became normal. It all became okay to offer a very, um, yeah, a very, a person who deserves respect because she was he's incredibly successful. And I'll tell you, you want to join during the day and we'll discuss your lights. Yeah. Anyway, so that didn't work out real well. So I am cruising along. It's a mess. GST comes in. Oh, my God, Bill, that ruins so many businesses because we took the money off the customer, but then we gave it to the pub and the drug dealer. But the government said, no, you've got to give 10% to me. And that was confusing. <laughs> it was just, uh, yeah. So I didn't for three years, and um, they caught up with me and they liquidated my company. And I was one year sober. I um, I stopped drinking when I was thirty-seven. Now, sorry, when I was yeah thirty-seven, and my company was liquidated when I was thirty-eight. And yeah, it was tough, Bill. It was tough. It was um, because you know they say you come into recovery and things get better, and my life got significantly worse. <laughs> and I've never earned less money. Never earned less money. I'm working in a warehouse stacking boxes and I can be quite flamboyant and there's not one gay person in sight and not many people actually speak English. But, yeah, it just wasn't for me. wasn't for me. But I spent a year there stacking boxes, living with my mother because I couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. I spent my 40th actually with my mother. That was horrible. Yeah, it was a really tough time. When, when, when we get sober, when we come into recovery, and I stopped drinking and I stopped taking drugs and I stopped spending because I had no money. So I took up um, sexual relations. And, um, yeah, it was just another addiction. Yeah, we, people will learn as they come into recovery that we put down one thing and something else popped up. So I was one year sober and, yeah, my, my whole life fell apart. My whole life fell apart. Uh, my brother passed away from suicide. He um, could have used the 12-step recovery rooms, but uh, never did. And um, we were never close. But uh, it kind of showed me what happens to people who don't try and change their bad behaviours, their unmanageable behaviours. People die. People die all the time, Bill. It's shocking. We learn that in recovery. It's... Uh, it's quite a, uh, it's a scary thought, but um, people do. Yeah. I don't want to get too down. Do you want to just go back and just talk about why you sought recovery? Why I sought recovery? Because nothing else worked. I only come into recovery, Bill, because I've tried every therapist. 
<laughs> and it helps when you go to therapy to tell the truth. It's just a non-concept, but uh, I know a lot of addicts, we don't tell the truth when we're going to recovery. And it helps not to be on marijuana or drinking alcohol because I've done all that, all those three things. And therapy didn't work. Medication didn't work. Nothing worked. Nothing could stop my drinking. Can't tell you how many people, therapists, I've said to, I can't stop drinking. And not one of them said I might be alcoholic. So I never thought I was, no, I never thought I was alcoholic, Bill. I really didn't. Yeah. I knew what an alcoholic was. That was my father, my stepfather, my other father. Like, they were alcoholic, but I wasn't. I've never been violent. I, I don't think I've ever really lost control in an aggressive manner. Yeah, life's pretty bad. So, Bill, I'm trying to save my shop, which has just fallen into a bad, bad place because of no money, which is a retail homeware store. And if you don't get new stock, no one comes in. So I tried to kill myself. And I'm sitting behind my couch crying my heart out to a group called Direct Line, which is a drug and alcohol counselling line. And the guy said to me, Stuart, we can't help you. You call us up at least once a week when you're using. We can't help you. And he hung up the phone, Bill. I couldn't believe he hung up the phone. I was so upset. So I decided I really should kill myself. But before I do that, I should call Lifeline. And I called up Lifeline. And they are, and Direct Line are the most amazing people too, but Lifeline knew what they were doing. I swear, this woman on Lifeline, I'm about to throw myself out the window. She's saying, don't do it. She calmed me down. And I'm behind my couch crying and crying and crying. So the couch is important. Bill, I designed furniture and I designed a couch and that couch was going to make me happy. And when that couch arrived, I was going to stay at home and sit on my couch and watch TV, what normal people do. The couch arrived after 16 weeks and I sat on my couch and I said I should go out and celebrate. External things do not make us happy. So I'm behind my couch, crying my eyes out, and I called out for God's help. And I've never called out for God's help at any point in my life to anyone ever. And this will be significant later. But the woman on the other end of the phone said, we need to get you into bed. And tomorrow, when you wake up, Stuart, you have to go to your doctor and tell your doctor what, what's happened tonight. She got me into bed. I calmed down. I went to sleep. I got up in the morning. And where I lived, where my doctor was and where my shop was, was in a straight line. So I couldn't go to my shop without walking past my doctor. And I'm walking out of my apartment and I'm thinking, last night wasn't that bad. You know, it was a few hiccups. You know, I probably spent $1,000 and lost $1,000 and humiliated myself and stole drinks off people. That was what, what I do when I've got no money at the bar at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Or go to the bar and say, someone stole my drink. So I'm about to walk past the doctor and I thought, that woman from Lifeline said I should go in and tell my doctor. And I did, Bill. And something happened. I went in to see my GP. Norm is an amazing man. I've been seen for 16 years, by the way. And I sat down with him. I told him what happened last night. Norm said, Stuart, you might be alcoholic. Would you like to go to an AA meeting? And I cried. He looked up because some lovely AA member had done some service and left some literature in his doctor's surgery. So he had an AA meetings book in his desk drawer. Thank God for people who do service. And there was a meeting around the corner. And that night, so I went to work, went to that meeting, and a miracle happened, strangely. This is a true story. The barman from the hotel where I drank for 17 years every night was the greeter at the AA meeting. How does that happen? It just does, you know. <laughs> Lovely Michael. And Michael's in recovery now too, and I saw him recently. But, uh, yeah, it's a crazy world. So I felt comfortable going into that meeting. I went into the meeting sat at the back of the room, was quite disappointed there was no one very attractive there because that's what I was thinking. I'd find a husband and everything would be all right. And left that meeting and drank. And I went home and I'm like this fabulous interior designer, shop on Chapel Street, drive a lovely car, go overseas all the time. I don't have a freaking fridge. I can't get my act together to have a fridge in my apartment. My last drink of alcohol was warm cask wine. It's so sad. I drank all over the world and most amazing drinks, and that was my last drink. Yeah. Look, I haven't told that story for a long time. Sorry if it went on a bit. Um, 
It's it's amazing. So I joined AA the next day and found a conference and went to a conference. And I had high ego and low self-esteem. And the man who was the guest speaker at the conference, a guy called Mickey Bush, who was out from America, after the conference ended and everybody's standing around chatting, I've got the confidence to go up and introduce myself to this Mickey Bush. And Mickey Bush holds my hand, as you'll learn if you ever come into recovery, people. He holds my hand, looks into my eyes, see that I'm a compulsive liar, thief, full of shit. He says, how are you going? I said, because I've heard the lingo, I said, I haven't had a drink today, but I've had drugs in the morning. And he goes, for how long? And I said, today's day one. And he goes, why don't you come with me? Oh, it sends tickles through my spine. So this guy, who's the lead speaker from America, speaking in front of a 1,000 people, asked me to spend the rest of the week with him every night going to a meeting. And that's what we do in 12-step. He showed me that you do service, you find a newcomer, and things will get better. And I did, and I followed him around. And I felt like a little celebrity because there was Mickey Bush and he wouldn't introduce me and he's passed away now, but a great man, a great man. Mm. But he started my recovery journey because he said there's one way for a guy like you to get sober, and that's the big book. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but I agreed. I said, yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> it could have meant. It doesn't matter what it could have meant. But, yeah, it's um, – yeah, so he led me to another group where they talked about uh, recovery and 12 steps and literature and doing service. So I stopped drinking, and about six months later, I found sex. And that was pretty exciting for a couple of years. Got very busy, and um, then I found a fellowship for sex. But after sorry, six months, I found sex. A year, I found spending, but I didn't have any money, but I was still spending what I, oh, I couldn't. Sorry, it's not that I didn't have any money. The money I had didn't stick to my hand. If I had a bill to pay, I wasn't paying the bill while spending the money. Really annoying. And I found DA, which is this most amazing program. And they call it the PhD of fellowships because it's tough. It's tough. It's uh, Money is in everything, absolutely everything. And I, mean, I believe OA is the same, food addiction. It's tough. Yeah. With alcohol, I can just stop. With drugs, I can just stop. But with food and spending, my God, it's uh, – uh, I put a challenge out there to anyone. At the, you do one week of keeping your numbers, and it's, it's just such a shock. It is really like, oh, my God. I didn't realise I had so many bills is what I hear a lot of sponsees say. A sponsee is someone who I take through the 12-step program. We can come back to that. But I think that that is my experience to – I, I'm stuttering here because Bill's asked me to talk about DA and my other experience in other recovery programs. And normally in recovery programs, you only speak about the program you're in. And it's, it's a bit tongue-tied to speak about all three in one conversation, Bill. Um, I'm sure you get that. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, listen, why, why don't we leave uh, the talk about um, DA to the next break and we'll have another short break now. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Our second song is by Kyle Taylor. It's called Yee Yee Yee. Hope you enjoy it. Should sell my stuff. 
layer for the cooler months we've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say workers radio available now online or at the station perfect for layering when you're out on the street they'll have you picket line ready for winter at $40 you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by quality tops in reservoir order now and we'll post one out for $8.50 or you can pick it up from the station Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Radio MMT. The facts about economics. Radio MMT. With Anne and Kev bringing you fair and balanced reporting. They are bastards, uttering complete bastards, Anne. (laughs) That's right. We're we're really digging into this bastardry. It's a smokescreen for corporations to increase their profit margin. All these big lies. Corporate profit and greed. They're considering it in their evil plans. He's the archetype megalomaniac neoliberal. The government pretending to be there for the The people. The neoliberal ethos of squeezing workers. This power struggle is continuously playing out under our very noses. So it's simplistic and it's inaccurate. What kind of an economic recovery strategy is that? Do you reckon it's more effective to say it's spurious to say the least or it's bullshit? (laughs) Radio MMT. The second and fourth Friday of each month. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today we're talking with Stuart and we're talking about recovery and we're going to start talking a bit about recovery from debt problems as well. So Stuart, before the the break, you were mentioning the fact that you're in many fellowships and you talked about debt as anonymous. So do you want to tell us a little bit about 
why you went to debtors and loans. I think you've alluded to the fact that money didn't stick to your hands, but what was the thing that, that made you go, gosh, I've really got to take this more seriously? Thanks, Bill. More seriously, I like that. It's uh, Because I was trying to be serious about it. I tried very hard to manage my own money. I was 38 years old and didn't have health insurance, not even sure I had car insurance. Every bill that I that came into my house, I was not ready for. A bill would come in, including rent. I would be surprised every month that the rent came was due. I never knew how to budget and how to like have what we call a spending plan, how to allocate funds on a weekly basis, because I was getting paid weekly, into different lots. Yeah, I just I had no idea. And some people don't have to do that. I mean, some people can just earn an income and have money to pay for all their bills. It just it all works out. Yeah. That's right. They're, they're very good at it. And and it's not about how much money they earn. This is a big touch point in uh, DA. It's not about how much money you earn, about how much money you save. And oh, there's a huge difference. <clears throat> yeah, there's a huge difference. Just a quick story. So in 12-step, in DA, we have sponsees. The sponsee is someone who tends to check in with you quite regularly and you discuss the program of recovery that's outlined as a DA, a DA book literature that talks about how to go through the 12-step program. And there's a workbook, which is fantastic, which I believe you can get online to um, show you how to work, work the steps of the 12-step DA program. And it is recommended that you do it with someone who's experienced in it. Um, there's a lot of nuance to it to make it uh, really effective. But I've had a sponsee who is a doctor but had six credit cards, had like three house mortgages, none of his cars were his, his boat wasn't his, and every week he was broke. And that's my point. It's not about how much you earn. It's really not. Which I, I always thought if I earn enough, everything will be okay. And it never happened. It never happened. When I came into 12-step, I was $240,000 in debt of unsecured funds. And I didn't even know what unsecured funds was meant back then, but I've since learned. I haven't got a house against it or a car against it. I just owe that money to people and places. And a lot of that was the tax office. And I have to say that my mother, one day, as I'm living with her, and she's all right about me living there, but she's not able to do it, she called up the tax office and she got my tax debt wiped. It was just amazing, just amazing. So, And what, what that shows me is you've got to talk to your people you owe money to because I never used to talk to the people I owe money to because they would want money. So, But if you talk to people who owe money, who you owe money to, things change. So, yeah, I had all that debt. Uh, I paid it all back. I even owed my mother $60,000, and I paid that all back. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was a horrible debt. It was a horrible debt to my mother. So I'm 38, I've accrued all this debt, I don't know how to get out of it, and I come to DA because someone in AA recommended I go to DA, lovely woman called Megan, she said, maybe you need to go to DA, Stuart, and I'm like, really? Which is called Debt as Anonymous, and I said, okay, so I went, and from my very first meeting, I was sold, absolutely sold, because other people in the room got to know what got it when I said, I earn all this money and I have nothing. And I have nothing to show for it. Yeah, so I started working the program. I got a sponsor very quickly, and she was great. We used to meet every week to discuss how I would spend my $700. That was my income. Unfortunately, my debts were about three grand a week, but I had $700 of income. And um, she just put me through it very slowly, very calmly. And gradually, very gradually, because I worked the steps with her, we went steps through steps one, two, and three, which is where we admitted we were powerless over spending and our lives have become unmanageable. And that's a tough one to admit. And it gets worse for some people because step two is came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I so get that because I'm insane. I, I, I knew I was insane around money. And then it says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to a power greater than ourselves. Now, a lot of people balk at that because they think it's about religion, and it's not. It's about spirituality. And to define it even closer, for me, it was about my sponsor. I turned my life over to my sponsor because I didn't believe in God, and I wasn't going to believe in God because I, at that point in my life, there was no one ever had ever looked after me, so I couldn't believe there was a God. 
I've since learned the mere fact that I was alive, something they look after me because I should be dead. It's uh, so many times over. Yeah, or in jail. Um, and a pretty guy like me is not going to jail. It's not going to end well. It's not, uh, yeah, but I never went to jail. So I'm going through the steps and things aren't getting better. And I'm living with my mother and things aren't getting better. And then something happened. Someone in fellowship said, Stuart, I think I've got a job for you, but you need this qualification. And I've never been one for qualifications. All my family is self-employed. And I listened to him, a lovely man called Damien, who's also passed away. Um, and Damien said to me, you need these qualifications. And I went and did them. And within a year, I went from earning $30,000 a year to about $150,000 a year. But that's just my experience, and that's what happened. You know, I get tingly thinking about it. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I'd started off a new life. I think I was like three or four years in before that happened, by the way. That didn't happen straight away. Yeah, and things change. Things change. You can't, I can't explain just how significant that was for me to not have to live with my mother anymore at 40. Like, it was just horrible. Like, the shame. You know, people say, oh, you know, we've all had the same experience. Well, you just haven't. No, I was 40 living with my mother as a gay man. It was just a horrible. And anyway, I didn't do that anymore. And I moved in with a friend, dear Russ. Um, oh, so when you come into recovery, other people see you come into recovery. And my dear rough friend, Russ, who I was living with, he came into recovery. He, uh, he came into recovery as well. It was really nice. A few years later, but he came into recovery. But he asked me to live in his house, which was very kind of him. Uh, rent for him, which was very kind of him. While I got my act together. It's, uh, yeah, just amazing. Just amazing. What happens? See, so many people come to 12-step bill and they miss the fellowship. You know, they come into the room, they leave straight after the meeting, they get there just before the meeting starts, and they miss it. And the fellowship is, like, amazing. Like, it says in the big book, we're a group of people who would not normally mix, and it's true. I would have never met Damien in my in my drinking and drugging days. He was a respectable business person. Um, highly respectable, highly brilliant. But he saw something in me that I didn't see, and uh, he gave me an opportunity. And, that, and that's what happens in 12-step. It just, you've got to keep showing up. <laughs> I couldn't afford clothes at one point, and my pants, my clothes, well, I were just rags, just rags, and I just kept on coming to meetings. And somehow I've, I've afforded to smoke, <laughs> because we all smoke in early recovery, just in case you're wondering. So in the DA meetings, we ask, it is suggested by the program, that you write down your numbers, which I've touched on, but what it really gets into is when you get paid each week, you're meant to have, and I have, actually I have probably 12 different bank accounts. They're free. Like, it's, it's no big deal. My bank accounts are free. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. So those four different bank accounts, each I get paid monthly now, and I allocate the funds into those bank accounts monthly now. And I have like a prudent reserve, a contingency plan, a shopping plan, a travel account. I have my mortgage accounts. Yeah, okay, so 19 years ago, I had $240,000 of unsecured debt. I now have three house mortgages. It's just amazing. Just amazing. The banks give me money, Bill. It's just, um, and I'm not lying about it. Like, it's uh, might just a lot harder now to lie about that sort of stuff. 20 years ago, you could. Anyway, yeah, it's about having separate bank accounts. And I look at them. Pretty much every day, I'm quite obsessive. And uh, I see how it's all going. And I make sure the rent is coming in for my rental properties so that I know when my mortgages are due that I get paid on time. And so I think only once in like seven years if I missed a payment on a mortgage. It's amazing. It's amazing. But that's from learning because when I was growing up, I didn't learn how to manage money at all. Like when we did, there were no there were no examples on how to manage money. That's the hard thing I think in life, Bill. When you grow up in addict, you don't have great examples. So we come into the rooms of DA and we're surrounded by people who are working a program to get financially solvent so that they're not in debt, to be honest about their debts, to make amends to all those people. And I get to walk down the street and look everybody in the eye. None of that I learned at home growing up. None of it. None of it. Like just, yeah. I learned how to 
steal and cheat and, yeah, look you in the eye and be dishonest. So, yeah, DA is like the, as I said before, someone once called it the PhD of fellowships. So I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I go to DA. And I've touched on Al-Anon. And, yeah, it's the most amazing journey that I'm having, all because I keep fronting up and stay sober. You know, none of this works if you're not sober. Really, it's, it's such a shame. I've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, for those people who are traveling really rough now, right now, my life is totally different. I have a loving partner. We are just coming up to 13 years in a monogamous relationship, which I, I say that because I'm so proud of myself. I didn't know what monogamy was. Um, and we talk about money. We have clean conversations about money. We have two children who are actually are a little bit spoiled because yeah, my son wants to join the $30 Nike Runners. But, you know, I'm not paying for it on debt, you know, and part of me wants him to have the life I didn't have. So it's quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge. Like parenting, there should be a fellowship for parenting. It really should. <laughs> I'm sure there will be one day. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> one other question I want to ask you about, you know, you talked about lying and cheating and stealing. So are those things out of your life? Or are they under control, if you understand what I mean? I do. Oh, there's a big difference. There's a big difference, huge difference. So I haven't stolen for – I have to. I do have a time on this. I think it's 15 years. I don't lie, um, and I definitely don't cheat. I used to sell mixed herbs as marijuana. You know, no, it's uh, – yeah. It's the people bought it. You know, that's not my fault if people are going to buy it. It's, uh, but no, all that's gone, Bill. All that's gone, thank God. It's, um, but to be honest, in my head, sometimes I think I'm still that person. You know, it's still, I get these flashes and I get that insecurity, but I have to work through it because I'm not. But I've only been in recovery for like coming up to 20 years, you know, and I was out there and I had a dysfunctional life for 37 years. So, that imprinting, they call it imprinting, um, neuropathways, takes a long time to shift them. And I have to give a plug for something called EMDR. I, I do EMDR. It's life-changing. It's the best therapy I've ever had. And the therapist even says to me, look, I won't be speaking to you for much longer. No, no I've never heard a therapist say that. No therapist says that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's been a real thrill to share my story. Yeah, that's no, been really good. I'm, I'm pleased you came on. Um, I'll just read out if anybody would like to find out more about Debtors Anonymous, you can go online at debtorsanonymous.org.au for more information on recovery from compulsive debting. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Stuart for sharing his recovery story with us and talking about how Debtors Anonymous helped in his recovery. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for asking me and, and all that you do for people in recovery. This program, we never know who's listening, but we do know that people find something here. They really do, Bill. Like people, people's lives change. Yeah. And when one person's life changes, it's usually about 40 other people benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about the impact of addiction and the recovery journey. Uh, coming up next, we've got Balamoire, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Tolgum Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in The Spirit of War on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.